Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Safarova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Before we start today's interview, I have a gift for you. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies, free download, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And Firms Consulting is F-I-R-M-S consulting.com forward slash overall approach. And today we have with us Daryl Stickel. Daryl has worked for McKinsey in the Toronto office, actually in Toronto several years, so great city, as well as advised the Canadian military on trust building. Very few people can say that. Daryl served as faculty for the Luxembourg School of Business and the Center for Effective Organizations at the University of Southern California, and recently completed his book, a very, very good book, it's called Building Trust, Exceptional Leaders in an Uncertain World. Welcome, Daryl. So great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Daryl, so many of our listeners are actually working for McKinsey, BCG, Deloitte, Bain, other consulting firms. And of course, we have many listeners as well who are very interested in building the skills that you can only build in those consulting firms. And Maybe we can start with your experience of working as a McKinsey consultant and uh, kind of some key insights you developed during that time and how it contributed to you dedicating your life to studying trust and helping people build trust. So I, I wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments before I joined McKinsey. Um, and I got a, a great offer to join the Toronto office and had a, a fantastic couple of years there with the firm. Um, they they discovered early on that I had really good client hands. This that was what they said. They said you're like an eleven out of ten. Um, that's one of the best client hands we've ever seen. Which is why they sent me to the worst places possible, right? So they would immediately turn to me if you know we had clients where they're going to strike, or where there was a hostile takeover, or they didn't want to share the data. Um, and so I was one of the folks that they sort of identified as somebody who was, who was good at getting clients to open up and share with us and connect with us. Um, and really what I was doing was applying the skills that I had theorized about while I was working on my thesis. So I had this kind of long background and experience working with families and troubled teens and uh, kids in crisis and all of those kinds of things, which allowed me to engage with clients in a better way and to connect with them. And it ended up being a real central part of my ability to, to bring value to the teams that I was on. Because not only was I you know, a solid teammate and a, and a good collaborator, but I was able to ease the way with clients to get the information we needed to make solutions 
that were actually going to work for the clients to have the kind of impact we wanted to have. And really so much of our work as consultants is relationship-based. You know, we, we need to have the clients tell us what's actually going on so that we can solve the problems, diagnose them properly. And we need to have a good understanding of what their capabilities are so that when we develop solutions, they're actually tailored for the needs of that client rather than just theoretically based. And so I, I developed some great friendships, um, learned a lot in terms of the practical applications of the theories that I was developing. And then when I left the firm, um, I was actually, I, I left in 2001, I was involved in a car accident on the way to a client site and ended up with post-concussion syndrome. So I just couldn't work those kinds of hours anymore. Um, but those relationships have, have been core to my life for the rest of it, right? So I've got good friends still from my days in the Toronto office. I'm so sorry to hear about the car accident. I'm so glad you're okay. For our listeners who are really good at problem solving and they have very good technical skills, but they struggle to build relationships with clients, what advice would you give them? Yeah, so, uh, and that's not uncommon, right? I was kind of an oddball in some ways at the firm in that, um, you know, that's why I had good client hands, was was understanding uh, the perspective of the client, understanding the perspective of my colleagues and my teammates. Um, so for me, it's about building, it's about building trust. And trust is the willingness to make yourself vulnerable when you can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. And so there's elements of uncertainty and vulnerability there. And when we're deciding to trust someone, we ask ourselves these two fundamental questions. The first is, how likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty? The second is, if I'm harmed, how bad's going to hurt, which is perceived vulnerability. And it's uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. Now, we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And if we go beyond that threshold, then we don't trust. And if we're beneath it, then we do. And so building trust actually becomes fairly simple. It's where does uncertainty come from? And how do I take steps to reduce it? Where do perceptions of vulnerability come from? And how do I take steps to help the other person manage those? So that we can get below that risk threshold. And if we think about early relationships, you know, uncertainty tends to be fairly high, which means the range of vulnerability we can tolerate is actually pretty small. And as that relationship gets deeper, the level of uncertainty starts to decline. The range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. And so a lot of times for us, it's about how do we find shared ground? How do we find a commonality? How do we allow people to take a small step first? And in fact, often it means, how do I take a step first? How do I make myself a little bit vulnerable first to engage a norm of reciprocity so that people feel like they want to reciprocate? They want to come back and engage the same way with me that I just did with them. And it starts this virtuous cycle. So for me, I think there are 10 levers we can pull uh, to build trust. And I, I try to outline these as clearly as I can in the book. Um, but four of those reside within uncertainty. And so 
uncertainty comes from me as an individual and it comes from the context that we're embedded in. And what I need to do is think about the other person's perspective and how they're viewing me as an individual and how well they understand the context and how well I understand their context. And so a lot of times it's conversation. It's a more of a Socratic approach. So asking questions, trying to get a better understanding of each other. That's kind of a long answer. Sorry, Chris. No, it was very interesting. Thank you so much. <coughs> and your realization that most of the work on trust was limited came about in part through your learning about the concepts of moderators and mediators in statistics. Right. I found it very interesting. Could you share with us and with our listeners, I already familiar with it. I was blessed to read your book, but could you share it with our listeners? Just expand a little bit on that, what you found, because I think it is a it, good good information to have that people don't really have about trust. Yeah, so so often when you look at the trust literature or if you read a book about trust or something, you see these antecedents. Like people are talking about, oh, if you do this, then magically trust pops out the other side. But it doesn't always pop out the other side, right? And so, oh, be transparent. Well, yeah, sometimes that works and it helps and sometimes it doesn't. You know, the, the old adage about never watch sausage being made. Um, and so what we need to understand was that what was the lever that some of those antecedents were pulling, right? What was the influence that they were having to get a broader understanding of how trust is actually coming out the other side? And so, you know, prior to my thesis, almost all the research that I was reading treated trust like a black box. And something would happen out on the left-hand side, and then trust would just pop out on the right-hand side. And so part of my doctoral dissertation was really focused around what's going on in there. And it, that's that uncertainty times vulnerability equals risk equation. And what I realized is that almost all of the literature that we were seeing was talking about individual uncertainty. It was talking about what are the things that I do that make you trust me or not trust me. and uh, I found, you know, that's not the only place uncertainty comes from, right? So you and I are engaged on this, on this podcast, on this interview, or we're engaged with a client. That's a very different setting for them than a barbecue in their backyard, right? Or meeting at the supermarket or us happening to be on the same softball team. Those contexts are so different. And and yet the research really hadn't explained it very well. And so I wanted to understand what was it that was actually happening inside that trust decision. And, you know, I was looking at mediators and moderators, you know, moderators tend to alter the influence and mediators tend to get in, uh, in between and, and cause a different reaction. And, I came to understand, you know, geez, almost all this research is just talking about uncertainty. It's talking about from the individual perspective. Without talking about vulnerability, we can't talk about depth of relationship, right? When I ask people, who do you trust? I get these close, tight personal relationships, like best friend, spouse, sibling. And it's natural that that's where our mind goes. But we trust people all the time. You know, you go to a restaurant, you get in a cab, you... You talk to a consultant. Um, those are all sort of 
levels of trust that we're engaging in, there's a small amount of vulnerability and, and trust is a social lubricant that allows us to function, that allows us to, to perform together. And, you know, you think about the McKinsey experience where a team gets brought together for three months or maybe in a rare instance, six months to work on a project. Lots of times my experience was we had no previous experience with each other. You know, there were a group of individuals, but we, we all had a similar way of approaching problems. We all had a similar set of expectations and training, and we were all part of the same organization. It allowed us to function very quickly together. And so we trust some people more than others. And when I say that, people look at me and go, duh, right? Like, how did this guy get a PhD? And, but it's, it's one of those things that's obvious once you say it, and it, it was missing from the literature. And so when we start to talk about vulnerability, we are allowed to talk about some relationships are deeper than others. How do we build a deeper relationship? Well, partly it's about explaining myself and you getting to know me better, but partly it's also how do we set the context so that it's easier for us to predict our own behavior? You know, there's the old sort of meme about a McKinsey director could walk in never having seen a deck and give a presentation based on, you know, their familiarity with the, the templates that we use and the message that we try to get across because the context is so strong and the expectations are similar about what good looks like and what the story is that we're trying to tell. And so, you know, for me, the context piece was sort of new when I first started talking about it, but it was also, it's, it helped to start explaining things, right? So you go to a doctor's office, they say, take off your clothes and you do, right? Well, if we change that location from a doctor's office to a bathroom at a gas station, it goes from credible to creepy in a heartbeat, right? So the context has such a powerful impact on our decisions to trust that it was almost completely neglected in the literature. That is very true. And uh, just for the benefit of our readers, a moderator is a variable that influences the impact of one variable on another, like a magnifying glass. I love the example, magnifying glass increasing the impact of sunbeams on a leaf. And mediator is a variable that explains the relationship between two different variables. For example, the rate of snow melting on a spring day and the proportion of people wearing light clothing may be related with the air temperature serving as the mediator between them. Nicely so, explained. Yes, well, that's based on your book. And I re and you realized that uncertainty was the mediator for all right. people were pointing. And I think this point, if you could expand on this a little more, because I think that is a new way to think about trust. Right. And so, and, you know, my advisor at the time, Sim Sitkin, said, wow, you completely changed the way I think about this topic. And so... When we start, when I start working with folks, I start talking about how do we reduce uncertainty? You know, uncertainty is the variable that really drives our decision about whether to trust someone or not. And if we think about what's going on in the world right now, trust levels are lower than they've ever been. And we see these sort of big, hairy problems in the world that require collective collaborative action, and we're stuck, right? And 
And it's in large part because our vulnerability hasn't really gone down, but our uncertainty is bouncing all over the place. And so for me, it was really a case of understanding where does that uncertainty come from? And then how do we take steps to reduce it? And so, you know, the one of the seminal works was from 1995, a guy named Roger Mayer wrote a piece that talked about three elements of trustworthiness, benevolence, integrity, and ability. And that's kind of, you know, the literature has been a bit stalled since then. And other people have come out and they've talked about that in different ways. They've used different variables or names for it. Um, but a lot of people have sort of been stuck on those three levers. But they haven't really talked about how to apply them, right? They've just said they're important. And so for me, it was a journey of both being able to explain, here's what uncertainty is, and now here's how we take steps to reduce it. And here's where it comes from, right? So it comes from me as an individual, and it comes from the context that we're embedded in. And now how do we take that next step and actually start pulling those levers to reduce uncertainty? We, we each have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others. And if we, if we think about what it is, I think there are 10 levers. Those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull. And often it's the ability lever. Right. I work at McKinsey or Bain or BCG or I've got X amount of experience and I've got a degree and I've got, you know, I've worked with X number of clients. And that's the ability level that we can pull over and over and over again. Those who are better at building trust have multiple levers that they pull. And those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. And so a lot of times what I end up doing is, you know, when it comes to uncertainty, that question about how likely am I to be harmed? I'll come alongside and I'll say, how do we take steps to reduce uncertainty for the person? And where's the gap? Is it around ability? Probably not, right? So the, the gap that I often found with clients was around benevolence and integrity. And so benevolence is that belief you've got my best interest at heart, that you'll actually act in my best interest. And for us to do that, we actually have to understand what their best interest is, right? Often we just make assumptions. So I, I was talking to a group of parents and I said, who here has their kid's best interest at heart? And all the hands go up, right? It's a stirring site. But when I flip that question and say, how many of your kids would say that? It's about a third and it's somewhat hesitant. And so if it's not obvious in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, then how do we as consultants make it clear to our clients that we really want what's best for them so that they're able to open up to us. And I used to talk about the mantra at McKinsey, which was client first. Um, and so, you know, I said, that means that we're trying to serve your best interest, even if it doesn't act in the short-term interest of the firm of, of McKinsey or me as a consultant, my aspiration is to help you be successful. But I don't have the monopoly on the knowledge of what that is. So, you know, I, I have the problem statement, maybe from senior leadership, but what does success look like for you? And so we actually start having that conversation, including those people. We start to reduce their uncertainty. We start to make them feel a bit more comfortable opening up and having conversations. As we're able to explain the context, you know, I would ask people, um, 
if you could be anywhere doing anything with anyone at this moment, how many of you would be sitting here listening to me speak? And now I stopped doing that, Chris, because it wasn't good for my self-esteem. But because um, you know, no one would raise their hand. And, and I'd be sitting there thinking, well, then why are you here? Right. And I'd ask them, why are you? It's the context. You know, my boss sent me, or I've got this other problem that's that I'm struggling with, or you know, um, you know, I, I don't have tickets to Hawaii. Um, and so the context was actually driving so much behavior. And so once we start to understand trust in terms of uncertainty, it means that we're not just stuck with a couple of antecedents that people have given us that may or may not work. We actually have a tool we can use to start developing our own solutions. So rather than me saying to you, be authentic, I can say to you, let's try to reduce uncertainty for the other party. How do we take steps actively to do that? Well, partly we include them in the conversation and partly we come to understand what their best interests are. Or, you know, for the integrity lever, we we're, we take care about the promises and commitments that we make. And we, we know that people interpret the world through stories. So we co-create the story rather than leaving it up to each of us to make up our own. And if I, if I make a decision or take an action, I should be able to link that back to my values that I've expressed. If I can't, then I'm offside. So, and when, when it comes to the ability question, our favorite lever, who should be included in the conversation about what excellence is? about what good looks like. I would argue that if, if I'm a consultant, it's not just me. It's not just my colleagues. It's also my clients. And so we actually need to have a conversation with them about what does excellence look like for you? You know, within my role. And let's more clearly define it. Now, the firm does a great job. You know, I, I've only worked at McKinsey, so I don't know about the other consulting agencies, but the firm does an, an amazing job of defining what excellence is internally, right? This is good behavior. This is exceptional behavior. Um, here's some examples. They are world-class when it comes to some of that compared to a lot of organizations I've seen. But those are internally driven metrics. Not often do they include the client in that definition of what excellence is. And, you know, I guess part of the question becomes how deep do you go within the client to get that answer? Because some clients, senior executives are paying the bill. They're the ones who want to have the say about what good looks like. But if we're going to try to implement and if we want to get real information from the rest of the organization, we need to have them on site. I hope that answered the question. Yes, thank you, Daryl. And uh, it's interesting you brought up context i wanted to actually speak to you about this because i know that your view of trust is different from most experts in four ways number one taking into account the context right number two is perception of outcomes right number three is inclusion of vulnerability yeah and fourth is inclusion of emotions right people are not always rational actors so let's expand on it. You spoke about context. Let's talk about the other three. Okay. Wow, you did a good job of reading the book. Thank you. Um, how did you like it, by the way? I loved it. I think it's a very good book. I really enjoyed reading nice. it. Nice. 
Yeah. So, so um, when when we start talking about vulnerability, it gets fuzzy because you and I can have different perceptions of how vulnerable we are in exactly the same setting. And partly it's based on scarcity. Partly it's based on what we think is at stake, right? And how we value it. And so um, imagine $20 being at stake for a graduate student versus a senior faculty member. Their perceptions of that vulnerability are, are different. And, you know, when a McKinsey consultant comes into an organization, the vulnerability that those people within the organization experience is really going to depend on how much they enjoy their job. You know, do they like their colleagues and where they work? How easy do they think it would be to find another job? Um, how much change are they going to experience and how's that going to impact them? You know, what are, what are the, what's the upheaval going to be? You know, the, the piece that happens often when, when consultants are, are engaged is that uncertainty goes up. And so there's a certain level of vulnerability that those people are already experiencing. If we think about, you know, what is the vulnerability of someone within an organization? Well, it's, it's their sense of self because part of their identity is, is wrapped up in what they do and, and where they work. It's their relationships with their colleagues. It's, you know, their, their employment, uh, paying the bills and all those kinds of things. So, all of those things are wrapped up into their perception of vulnerability. And, you know, we come along as consultants and they, they immediately see us and they go, I don't know exactly why they're here. I don't know exactly what the results are going to be, but it's uncertainty and it's making me uncomfortable. And we see this with organizational change a lot, right? Where there's a sort of set level of vulnerability and then change starts to cause uncertainty to bounce on us, which means that our perception of the risk starts to bounce. And it may go beyond our threshold and beneath it and beyond it and beneath it. And so normal people will try to find ways to reduce uncertainty, but they'll also search for ways to reduce vulnerability. And that might be checking out, becoming disengaged, trying to find alternate work. And we see with so many mergers and acquisitions that actually lose value because the best people leave because they've got the best options and they're able to leave earliest. And so when we start to try to understand vulnerability, there's a series of questions we can ask to understand how people feel vulnerable. And then we can take steps to help reduce their vulnerability, right? By creating more options, uh, creating insurance policies, good exit plans, uh, compensation structures, that incentivize them to stay. There's, there's ways that we can reduce their perceptions of vulnerability. Now the perceived outcomes piece, again, there's a couple levers there. It's was the outcome a success or a failure and who gets the credit and who gets the blame? And so when we start thinking about, you know, as a consultant, we come in, we're engaged to solve a problem and we either solve the problem and the company goes on and thrives and is successful or we provide a solution and they're partially able to implement but the world is so volatile things are changing so quickly that it's hard to tell exactly what impact we had and people interpret the world through stories and so 
a lot of times it would behoove us, it would be in our best interest to actually have a shared understanding of what a good outcome looked like before we got to the end of it. And that means we can put our resources towards that positive outcome. You know, I know that my experience of working with a client who was on, you know, study 200, I was sitting there thinking, what kind of impact are we really having at this point? If, they, if they've needed us to come here 200 times, you know, it, are the problems just that pervasive? Is it new problems every time? Or is it the same sort of set of symptoms that we're not addressing? Um, and so we evaluate outcomes based on whether we think it was good or bad and, and who gets the credit, who gets the blame. We can take steps within perceived outcomes to have a, an impact on people's willingness to trust us the next time or to trust the general consulting agency or the group that we work with or people like us. And so that's another place that we can intervene. And that, that perception of the outcome sort of feeds back into our next interaction with that person. And in the middle of all this, you're right, is our emotional states, whether we like or dislike someone else. And, you know, the, the trust literature tends to be, be, treat people like they're rational actors, which, you know, if you've ever met people, we're, we're just not, right? And, and the more emotionally charged we become, the less rational we are. And so, um, again, that's another place where we can intervene, where we start to think about how do we have, how do we reset those emotional states? And this is one of the challenges we see with these long-term disputes is, you know, I, I got asked to, to be part of a study where there'd been a strike, everyone had been fired to get rid of the union. And during the strike, shots were fired. People went to jail. And then they brought in all of them back um, because it was in the middle of nowhere. And these were the only people with the skills they needed to actually run this facility. So there's a great deal of tension and animosity, right, and, and history. And at week six of our engagement, the head of the union stood up at a progress review and said, you know, we understand the costs are a problem, that labor's part of that. We're committed to doing whatever we have to do to make this work. And the director and the senior executive from the, from the client both looked at me and they said, what did you do? I said, I just started talking to them, right? I just had honest conversations. And we reset some of those emotional levers so that we could actually have rational conversations. Such a powerful example. So for someone who is currently on an engagement, and I know not all of our listeners are in consulting, but we will just use it as an example because it will be relevant for most of our many of our listeners, I wouldn't say most. Let's say they are on an engagement and they have a similar situation and they want to start those conversations. Do you have any tips on how they should handle those conversations? Yeah, so, um, and this is what I try to go through in the book and, and the masterclass that I've created as well, is I try to give people templates for conversations. And so let's say we're going to try to pull the benevolence lever. You could go tomorrow and you could say, okay, so I was listening to this guy, Daryl, and he was talking about trust. 
And he said that it's a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. And I started thinking about, you know, we're engaged in this project together and, and there's this interdependence going on. And so there is a certain level of vulnerability for each of us, right? For, for me, I'm trying to be successful and, and help make change. And for you, this is your life. I mean, this is where you work. And, um, and so I'm just aware that trust is probably important for us to be successful. And, and then I started thinking, well, what's the uncertainty involved? And, and I don't really know you very well, and you don't know me very well, and, and that's going to make it harder for us to work together. So one of the things this guy talked about was benevolence, having someone's best interest at heart. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you, have you ever experienced that? And 99% of the time, the other person will go, oh, God, yes. And, and then we start to narrow the funnel a little bit. And you say, well, have you ever had somebody really have your back? Have you ever felt like somebody was really on your side, that they were really benevolent? Yeah, actually. Well, what did they do? What did that look like? How did it feel? Now we're getting hints, right, about what benevolence looks like for that other person. Then we narrow the funnel even further. What does success look like for you? How do I help you get there? What would it look like if I was benevolent, if I had your best interest in heart? Now we've created transparency. Because now later on, when we're working together and something comes up and I'm able to do something that helps that person be successful, I can say, you remember when you told me that this is what success looks like for you? I was thinking about that when I did this. It wasn't an accident. Let's create the story that links those behaviors together. And now I'm pulling that benevolence lever. And, you know, people may not find that exact wording comfortable for them. But I got to tell you, so for all my clients and my students, my masterclass, I get people to pick someone to practice with. And routinely they say, you know, when I say to someone, hey, I need a practice partner for this trust course, people get kind of interested. And when I start, trying to pull these levers, it feels awkward and, and uncomfortable at the start, but my God, is the response positive. You'll get all kinds of benefit of the doubt if you're trying to build a better relationship and you're really clear and upfront about that. Then what are some of the most effective levers people can use? Well, yeah, okay, so that's a good question. Um, partly it depends on, on where the gap is. I think the thing we're missing most often right now in virtual environments and uh, with the heightened levels of uncertainty that we're experiencing is the benevolence lever. Um, because excellence is a moving target. And you know, the more senior we become, the less direct control we have over outcomes, the more we depend on those we lead to actually reach our goals and objectives. But what makes an excellent leader now is not the same thing that made an excellent leader six years ago. And it's such a moving target that it's, it's hard to really reliably rely on that. The integrity lever is, is a challenging one as well because it's hard to make promises that we can follow through on that are long-term in nature because things are changing so quickly. But I can always have someone else's best interest at heart. 
I can always think about what's best for them and try to try to do things that are in their best interest. Um, I think that's a powerful lever because then people will come alongside and becomes a shared problem, right? Rather than me trying to fix something, it's us trying to fix something together. Um, and I think, you know, part of what I'm really starting to lean towards is sharing imperfections. So making ourselves a little bit vulnerable first. And I've been talking with more and more leaders about, you know, acknowledging that, hey, what would have made me a great leader six years ago is not what would make me exceptional now. And what will make me exceptional three years down the road from now is not the same thing. And I'm going to have to learn and grow and evolve and develop. And I'm going to have to try new things. And along the way, I'm going to stumble. I may fall. And my expectation is that you'll be there with me. And you'll help me back on my feet. We'll dust each other off. And we'll learn. Because that's what I'm going to do for you. And so that's the lever that I'm trying to get people to pull. That's interesting because it, th this last one is also kind of connected to asking a person for a favor. Which is also yeah. one of the ways that yeah. we build relationships with people. Yeah, it's it's that willingness to ask for help. That um and I I had a an amazing session with a group of leaders from a senior leadership team where we were talking about benevolence. And you know, I said, tell me an example of when you've had a positive impact on someone's life. And they were sharing these powerful stories. And everyone was smiling, and the, the room was just buzzing with positive energy. And I said, now, if you could just explain why you're so effing selfish. And they kind of went, what? And I said, you've just told me how powerful that is, what an incredible feeling that is to be helpful to someone, but you never let anyone have that experience with you. You never give them that opportunity to lean in and help you. You never ask for help. You never make yourself vulnerable. And it was a powerful moment. It is very powerful. It is a powerful moment. And I'm thinking back, I myself have an issue with asking for help. I don't want to bother anyone. I want to solve everything. And I solve problems for everyone around me. But when I'm, I need support or help, I don't go and ask for that help. And then I'm, I'm working on it. And I see other people also struggling with it. What are some of the tips, advice you can give to people who don't feel comfortable asking for help, maybe because of the way they were brought up. Well, and it's, you're not alone. We're all struggling with this right now, Chris. And it's because uncertainty is so high, any additional vulnerability feels terrifying. But think about, so for me, I'm lucky, right? Because I'm legally blind. I wander the world with my guide dog, Drake. We constantly have to ask for help. And people are overjoyed to give it. And we've come to realize that it's a gift that we give the world. And think about how empowering it is for someone else to be able to have that moment where they were able to help someone as capable and competent as you. I helped Chris. I'd wander around telling people that. Right? I was able to do something positive for Chris. And I, she was struggling with something. And she turned to me. She asked me for help. 
And, you know, I had a, a moment where I was getting ready to cross the street and there was this panhandler sitting on a corner. And they called out to me, do you need help? And I said, well, I'm not sure when the light changes. And she said, I'll tell you. And the light changed. And, I, and she said, okay, light's changed. You're good to go now. And it was a positive, powerful moment for her. Someone who was vulnerable and, and doesn't often get that chance to help someone else. In that moment, she was helping me. And that was a powerful, so moving out of my own head and thinking about somebody else and the powerful moment it creates for them to be able to help me. Daryl, you are such an inspiration. You're able to go through so many challenges and you still, and you, you have so much light within you, so much positivity, so much kindness and this desire to help people. And I think that you are such a good role model and example. Thank you. To handle challenging situations and not let it stop you from making your contribution to the world. That's the aspiration, right? Is to make the world a better place. Yes. Yeah. Coming back to trust, how could someone let's say they, they're listening to us now and they want to test how much their team actually trusts them. How would you suggest they go about it? So that's a great question. And, and I told you before that I often ask people who trust or who do you trust? And I get these close type personal relationships. When I flip that question and say, who trusts you? I get this long pause. And then people will say, well, how do I know? How would I know if people trust me or not? And it goes back to that definition, right? It's definition for trust is the willingness to be vulnerable when you can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. And so we ask ourselves, how can people be vulnerable to us? And so if I'm a team leader, I start asking myself, do people actually push back against ideas they don't think are going to work? Do they try new things? Are they willing to make mistakes? Do they bring me the bad news early or am I the last to know? Do they tell me what their real development needs are? Are they open and honest about challenges that they're experiencing? Do I get real actual feedback, upward feedback? These are all ways that people can make themselves vulnerable to me. You know, I recently had a conversation with someone who said, yeah, I've had all kinds of thoughts about, you know, questions, and concerns about something my leader said, there's no way I talk to them about it. That's a low trust in me. And so <clears throat> really that's the exercise that we go through is asking ourselves is, do people actually come to me for information? Do they ask me hard questions? Because those are ways they can make themselves vulnerable. If the answer is no, then they don't trust you. And of course, trust can be learned and honed as a skill. How, Absolutely. How can we nurture and sharpen trust as a skill? Well, um, this is part of the challenge. Is I think we need to be more intentional now about building trust than we've ever been um, because of the heightened levels of uncertainty. 
Um, and my frustration is that there's a lot of people talking about trust. There's a lot of noise in the system, but not a lot of people talking about what the skills are we need to actually build it. And so for me, you know, this is going to sound self-serving, but read the book, read, you know, get my book, read it, take the masterclass. Um, these are all ways to actually learn about the levers and how to pull them. The successes that we've had have been mind-blowing. And, you know, I, I worked with a parent who's who felt estranged from his kids. It took me about three months, uh, showed him the model, talked him through it, did a little bit of coaching. And then three months later, he reports back saying, you know, my kids run to me now. The nature of the relationship has completely changed. And that's why I wrote the book and did the masterclass was to scale these things, right? To, to get people to actually start applying these skills because it's a skill we can all build. We can all get better at this. No matter where you are on the continuum, you can get better. This is a skill you can hone. And it's a critical skill in leadership, in consulting, and in your own personal relationships. Very true. Daryl, and what are the barriers that cause people to avoid building trust? Oh, yeah. So some of the biggest challenges are everyone believes they're trustworthy. So 95% of people believe they're more trustworthy than average, which is not only statistically impossible, but also problematic because it means that when they do run into a trust problem, they assume it's somebody else's issue to deal with, not theirs. Um, next is is this sort of belief that there's nothing I can do about it. Trust just is what it is, right? And people either trust me or they don't. And that's just not the case, right? We've seen too many examples. Um, and I guess the third one is I'm so busy, right? I'm fighting all these fires. And I don't have time to do that. And trust is a social lubricant. It makes your life easier. And so a lot of those fires will just go away, right? Life just becomes easier. And I can tell you, as a father of a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old, my relationships with them are incredible, just fantastic. And it's because I use this model. And my relationships with my clients are fantastic. You know, um, I say, you know, I keep saying we're going to do this or we've had success. And and then I'll stop myself and I'll say, no, no, no. Like, you guys are doing this. They said, no, no, it's we. It's us. You're part of the family. Those are the kinds of relationships you build with clients, with teams, with family. If you start to become more focused and intentional about building these strong relationships. That is very powerful. Is there something that you wish I asked you and I didn't? Uh, you did a fantastic job. Um, it's so clear that you read the book. Um, no, I think I think this has been fantastic. Thank you, Chris. Daryl, and the last question from me, and that is not related to trust, and it is my favorite question to ask. In the last few years, what were two, three aha moments, realizations that really changed the way you look at life or at business, but really changed something in how you look at life or business? Mm. So I tend to focus, you know, I've for people who read the book, you'll see that I've had a history of challenges and, and adversity. And 
Um, I tend to focus on what are the things that bring me joy that I have control over? And how do I make those happen just a little more often? And for me, that's that's having a positive impact in the world, real positive impact on, on people that I engage with. But even more so, it's my sons. Being a good dad, being connected to my sons. Um, and we can tell a negative story about ourselves or we can tell a positive story about ourselves. And I practice telling that positive story as often as I can. Um, and so I try to help my clients focus on some of that. Um, and my sons, you know, my older son said to me, he said, I had this realization that happiness isn't something you pursue. It's something you realize you have. And that was so nicely articulated. Um, that's been a big part of my journey. Very well said. Your son is very smart. He's, he takes after you. Oh, thank you. Where can listeners find find out more about you, but buy your book and so on? Anything you want to share? Yeah, so go to trustunlimited.com. Um, you'll find there's a, a blog section there with some articles and some some other podcasts. Uh, if you go to the About section, you can see a picture of my guide dog, Drake. He's the Director of Goodness, the DOG. Um, but you'll also find access to my book. Uh, you can buy the book anywhere on online that you buy electronic books. There's also the Masterclass, which is sort of the next step beyond the book, which is available on the website. Um, or you can reach out to me, Daryl at TrustUnlimited.com. And I'm happy to try to be helpful. Thank you very much, Dara. Thank you for taking this time. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for doing this work. Our guest today again has been Daryl Stickle. Check out Daryl's new book. It is called Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. And if you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies, free download. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. Take care. Daryl, thank you again so much. And I look forward to seeing you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.